Hello and welcome to the 29th and the final episode of Karl Marx's 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon Reading Group series. That's right, it's the final episode. It's been a long and winding road getting here, and Esri, Kyle and myself barely make it over the line before collapsing, exhausted, in a heap and need to be scraped off the asphalt to make way for what's to come. Today is Sunday, the 2nd of May, 2021, and yes, I am your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I have the new once-off patron, Vivac Sunny, and Jerry Kearns, who signed up for an annual subscription to thank. If you like the sound of extra Patreon-only episodes, hanging out with us all over on the Emancipation Network Discord server, or joining in the new patrons' fundamental principles of communist production and distribution reading group series, why not head over to Patreon and throw me some commie dollar? Your continued support really does help keep these episodes flowing. Okay, I'm starting to get emotional here. Let's do it one last time. I think this is a. This looks like a job for Kyle. Finally, the culminating idée napoléenne is the ascendancy of the army. The army was the point d'honneur of the smallholding peasants. It was they themselves transformed into heroes, defending their new possessions against the outer world, glorifying their recently won nationhood, plundering and revolutionizing the world. The uniform was their own state costume. War was their poetry. The smallholding, enlarged and rounded off in imagination, was their fatherland. And patriotism, the ideal form of the sense of property. But the enemies whom the French peasant now has to defend his property against are not the Cossacks. They are the Houssiers, the bailiffs, and their tax collectors, and the tax collectors. The smallholding no longer lies in the so-called fatherland, but in the registry of mortgages. The army itself is no longer the flower of the peasant youth. It is the swamp flower of the peasant lumpen proletariat. It consists largely of replacements, of substitutes, just as the second Bonaparte is himself only a replacement, the substitute for Napoleon. It now performs its deeds of valor by hounding the peasants in masses like chamois, by doing gendarme duty. And if the natural contradictions of his system chase the chief of the Society of December the 10th across the French border, his army, after some acts of brigandage, will reap not laurels, but thrashings. Well, that was prophetic. It is clear, all idées napoléennes are ideas of the undeveloped smallholding in the freshness of its youth. They are a contradiction to the outlived holdings. They are only the hallucinations of its death struggle, words transformed into phrases, spirits transformed into ghosts. But the parody of imperialism was necessary to free the mass of the French nation from the weight of tradition and to work out in pure form the opposition between state power and society. With the progressive deterioration of smallholding property, the state structure erected upon it collapses. The centralization of the state that modern society requires arises only on the ruins of the military bureaucratic government machinery, which was forged in opposition to feudalism. The condition of of the French peasants provides us with the answer to the riddle of the general elections of December the 20th and 21st, which bore the second Bonaparte up Mount Sinai, not to receive laws, but to give them. Obviously, the bourgeoisie now had no choice but to elect Bonaparte. When the Puritans of the, Cons- of the Council of Constance, uh, 1414 to 18, complained of the dissolute lives of the popes and wailed about the necessity for moral reform, Cardinal Pierre Daly thundered at them. Only the devil in person can still save the Catholic Church, and you ask for angels. Similarly, after the coup d'etat, the French bourgeoisie cried out, Only the chief of the Society of December the 10th can still save bourgeois society. Only theft can still save property. Only perjury religion. Bastardy the family. Disorder order. As the executive authority which has made itself independent, Bonaparte feels it to be his task to safeguard bourgeois order. But the strength of this bourgeois order lies in the middle class. 
He poses, therefore, as the representative of the middle class and issues decrees in this sense. Nevertheless, he is somebody solely because he has broken the power of that middle class and keeps on breaking it daily. Uh, middle class here means bourgeoisie. He poses, therefore, as the opponent of the political and little literary power of the middle class. But by protecting its material power, he revives its political power. Thus, the cause must be kept alive, but the effect where it manifests itself must be done away with. But this cannot happen without small confusions of cause and effect, since in their interaction, both lose their distinguishing marks. New decrees obliterate the borderline. Bonaparte knows how to pose at the same time as the representative of the peasants and of the people in general, as a man who wants to make the lower classes happy with the framework of bourgeois society. New decrees cheat the true socialists, quote unquote, of their governmental skill in advance. But above all, Bonaparte knows how to pose as the chief of society of the de December the 10th, as the representative of the lumpen proletariat to which he himself, his entourage, his government, and his army belong, and whose main object is to benefit itself and draw California lottery prizes from the state treasury. <laughs> and he confirms himself as chief of the society of December the 10th with decrees, without decrees, and despite decrees. This contradictory task of the man explains the contradictions of his government. The confused groping which tries now to win, now to humiliate, first one class and then another, and uniformly arrays all of them against him, whose uncertainty in practice forms a highly comical contrast to the imperious categorical style of the government decrees, a style slavishly copied from the uncle. Wow, there's a lot in there. <laughs> that was too much. You shouldn't have given you all that to read there, Carl. <laughs> Yeah, but he did it with such grace and style. I mean, oh, I don't yeah. know. So for, first here, like uh, the stuff about the relationship of the army to the French peasant. It's brilliant. Like, especially like this one you see, Kyle, where he says like that if they actually go and chase Napoleon across the border in a battle, they'll get their ass handed to them. Man. Um, <laughs> like, uh, Bismarck is waiting in the ways. <laughs> Like, that's a direct prediction, and it was 100% right. 100% right. The most shambolic defeat of, like, the 19th century. Just just comical. Right up to the emperor himself being captured on the battlefield. What do we think about, like, the American army's inability to win wars with respect to this? I, yeah, that is the echo in my head here, the, the mm -hmm. parody of imperialism, you know, where we go in, we overthrow a Baathist and create ISIS. Yeah, you know? well, and also, like, you know, people are increasingly saying how much the U.S. military is becoming a paper tiger. I extremely expensive, but also very inadequate at fighting wars. You know, especially with its its outdated arsenal and how, like, drone warfare is going to completely revolutionize warfare in general going forward. I do like this, <laughs> you know, this, this original point about the point on L about the, 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 you know, the, the peasants transformed into heroes and so on. It reminds me a lot of watching the sharps rifles series, you know, with uh, what's his, what's his name now? Uh, the guy who dies in everything. Sean B. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about this. Talk, talk, talk to me. So this is a, this is a a series of kind of like boys ownish, rah rah, you know, rural Britannia historical fiction that was written about the Napoleonic Wars, and which centers around a rifleman who is of a low class origin and has to grapple with the realities of the British military while fighting Napoleon. So it's a kind of thing of okay. like, he is presented as a sort of like new British man who can get beyond the decadence of aristocracy, but also like upholds the yeoman virtues of Englishness huh. in opposition to the French. But when you watch the, like, you know, the, 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 the injustices of the aristocratic system and the injustices of British class society are on full display in that series. 
And when you watch it, you almost kind of wonder to yourself, like, is he on the wrong side here? <laughs> like, and his, his, like, the, the final episode, which is about the Battle of Waterloo, well, there's a really bad one where he goes to India later, but the actual, the actual, you know, last episode of the series, which is about the Battle of Waterloo, he's not really motivated ideologically to fight Napoleon. And his big moment in the show is like when he actually gets to see Napoleon on horseback. And he's like, wow, I actually saw Napoleon. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is really strange ambiguity in relationship to Britain. Whereas for, I feel like, feel like for the French peasantry, it's a much less ambiguous relationship and they could see themselves as heroes for the cause. Whereas for Sharp, it was very much like I'm a hero despite the society I live in. So yeah, this is just really a really interesting point that Marx brings up here. Yeah. And and, and in, in the same breath, you know, the small holding no longer lies in the so-called fatherland, but in the registry of mortgages. <laughs> the army is no longer the flower of the peasant youth. It is a swamp flower of the peasant lumpen proletarian. I mean, you know, leaving a uh, peasant aside, like this could very well describe the changing relationship between army and society in vastly different circumstances yes, in the United yes. States as the, you know, and really that's a dynamic that started to change far before this change in property holding, you know, perhaps like, you know, 40 years before. But, yeah, you know, the, it's, co- the it's correlation's the, unmistakable. It's the trauma of Vietnam is this trauma, right? Yes, exactly. I saw, like, a TikTok or something on Twitter of, like, done by some U.S. Army. It, like, what's the lowest level in the U.S. Army? What would you call them? I don't know. Cadet? That, that's Starfleet. I'm not sure. It's a private, private, right? Private, yeah. I would say they're all private. And there's somebody behind the camera is going, he goes up to, like, you know, another private. He goes... Why why do you join the US Army? And he the, the guy looks at him like dead eyed and he goes, Fuck off. And then he goes to another one. Why did you join the, you know, like just these are all different. <laughs> why did you join the US Army? He's like, I've fucking no idea. Fuck this. And it's like he just asked like about a twenty <laughs> people in a row and they're all just looking like fucking no idea, man. Uh, and it's just that's, like, that's brutal. That's wow. It didn't hear me. I could imagine that is actually what the fucking life is. They all look like they were bureaucratized to their fucking ass and just like dickheads talking to them all the time. Just they're all poor and they're only doing it because they're broke and they want to go to college. And it's like, fuck right. this. I hope we don't go to a war. There's a lot of shit. I don't want to die killing some Yemenis for a bastard. You know, that's yeah. the vibe you just got off all of them. Wow. Yeah. The only people I knew that actively considered going to the army were people that are really shit out of luck, you know, that were like, had trouble holding down a job and we're pretty desperate. That's, you know, I know people who it. consider joining the U S military for idealistic reasons, but they didn't actually do it. So you know, <laughs> that says something. I love those. I yeah. love those type. Yeah, I could do if I wanted it, but my, my little finger was had slight bit of arthritis in it, you know, yeah. those are the reasons people go to West point, not like in the list. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, there's a bit here then I wanted to... Uh... Oh, about the centralization of the state and the parody of imperialism. Is that the one? Yeah, this, yeah, this, this, these two lines here. But the parody of imperialism... So this is the parody of trying it out the second time that, you know, with, with Napoleon III, it, it wasn't like the imperialism of his, of his uncle. But the parody of imperialism was necessary to free the mass of the French nation from the weight of tradition and to work out in pure form the opposition between state power and society. So what, what is he saying there? Is, is he saying like that believing in this parody of the new Napoleon allowed the French nation to kind of figure out the relationship, you know, between the bourgeois, the small holdings and the state and the new bourgeois regime? Is that is that what he's saying? It's the, uh, it's the, the way in which the, the state the military and the police turn against the peasantry. That That's what it, it works out in pure form, the opposition between state power and society. 
because the, the the people who saw themselves as heroes saw the fatherland as identical to their petty possessions once they're dispossessed and uh you know the soldiers are coming in to uh kick them out to make sure the foreclosures go ahead or whatever to force them into pauperdom then that dream is uh shattered completely yeah it heightens the contradictions you might say Marx then turns on his amazing writing skills here. Who wants to read this one again? I, I think this this deserves to be reread. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, oh, yeah, only the devil in person can still save the Catholic Church, and you ask for angels. Similarly, after the coup d'état, the French bourgeoisie cried out, "Only the chief of the society of December tenth can still save bourgeois society. Only theft can still save property. Only perjury, religion." Bastardry, the family, disorder, order. Yeah. I just want to want to point to Rachel Maddow praying for oh. Trump's, Trump's life. Oh, oh uh, my God. Uh, yeah. Not yeah, only praying, yeah. but telling everyone to pray for him. And and saying, like, if uh, and essentially calling him her friend. She said, like, yeah. if your friend oh, got cancer after they smoked cigarettes and you kept telling them not to. Oh, my God. Would you wish them dead? I would. I would say death to the, to the <laughs> cigarette smoker. Death well, to no, them. No, I, I think the, the questionable <laughs> analogy here is the word friend, Tom. I know. I'm joking. I am joking. I know. I that. know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know my favorite bit i didn't watch the debate god no why the fuck would i do that but i saw a few yeah. highlights but my favorite thing after the debate like the shock like oh no like, <laughs> not on awe but the, the, the shock and like just whatever pure shock yes yeah, the shock yeah. and the shock Disdain. was on twitter on twitter like there was a whole load of people who were tweeting like you know death to america <laughs> like america <laughs> hey, oh my god they all of a sudden you sound know. like the ayatollah yeah Seriously, they even uh, had they even like they had pictures of the Ayatollah with like underneath the text saying "Death to America" and like getting wow, five thousand yeah. retweets. The, that, the that, Iranian bot networks, like, oh, we got to get on this. Yeah. This is our big chance. Yeah. Deploy the bots. I don't load up the servers. Let's go. I don't think there was no bots. I think that literally was the death of America. That debate. No, no. I, I just mean that it would be a great time for them to bandwagon with oh, a yeah. bunch of bots. Seriously, right? Uh, yeah. Like, and the drones. Did you, did did you see the clip of the NHK coverage of the debate? The the Japanese uh, national broadcaster coverage, where they have no. uh, like simultaneous interpreters dubbing over the the debate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. they have, so they, they have one one interpreter per speaker right <laughs> because you know people are going to talk over yeah. each other and if you just have one interpreter then you can't do it like yeah, uh naturally the, the, this was this was probably a very active one for them yeah so the actually the one in taiwan the interpreter in taiwan they only got one guy to do it and he just uh, turned to his boss and said, how the hell do you expect me to do anything with this? And just got <laughs> up and left. Uh, but the, the Japanese one is everyone is doing their simultaneous interpretation simultaneously. So you have six people talking over each other in two different <laughs> languages. It's oh. so amazing. It's just like utterly incoherent you can't you can't take anything out of it at all and i speak both languages oh that is brilliant that is fun how beautiful wow oh. pity was on like so late that uh we couldn't do like a live stream an emancipation oh, network live stream. I, that so, would have I, deserved one i'm so I, glad i, mean, I did i did so glad i didn't watch that no, you, you know what? I watched Star Trek Insurrection instead. And you know what? A lot of people think that that's a bad TNG movie. But let me say, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I think I had a much better night than everyone else who was live streaming that. Like, I tuned into, like, the Chapo Trap House stream, like, on Twitch after after the debate was over and after I had some, you know, fun game times with friends not watching the debate. They all just looked like they just saw, like, a horrific train wreck. And they were just like, why are we doing this? I watched a bit of that like uh, the next day and just like every like five minutes, I think your man, Matt Crisson was doing like, you know, pharmaceuticals and like every like five, five minutes he was, he would just go like, what the fuck is going on? What the fuck is this? 
And then he, it was just, it was quite funny. He would just like explode, like he was like, you know, like you take a load of mushrooms and then you're out of your mind and you have clarity about once every like fucking five minutes. Oh man. Your consciousness right. rises from the swamp. This inherent instability of, of his rule was playing the class against each other. This was getting towards what we just talked, what we talked about previously about Stalin. You know, that's where it ends up. That's where these Bonapartist things end up. They're not represented in a real class. You know, they, they have to attack all classes with their own force. Yeah, they're, it's only the hallucinations of its death struggle, words transformed into phrases, spirits transformed into ghosts. Yeah. The centralization of the state that modern society requires arises only on the ruins of the military bureaucratic government machinery that was forged in opposition to feudalism. That's just a point that is like standardly accepted in mainstream historical uh, mm-hmm. literature at this point. Like this is just an observation of Marx's that pretty much everyone acknowledges at this point. Mm-hmm. The the it other is stuff is basically the whole thing about decrees, right? Like it's yeah, and the true socialists and safeguarding bourgeois order. Well, the true socialists yeah. were the German socialists in the eighteen forties, reactionary German socialists. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that the book, and you know, this uh, sort of predicts the way that a you know strong government figure can outflank all of the socialist types in a quite you know in Lasallian way. Yeah, that's what like, that's what you see in the actual Second Empire, right? Is like this right. weird combination of sort of like socialistic mm-hmm. government mobilization of the economy with just these like haphazard decrees and all the other Bonapartist stuff. And also this like weird dialectical uh, independence from decrees with decrees, without decrees, despite decrees that Louis Napoleon has to offer here. It it doesn't have the uh, like actual majesty of the first Bonaparte's decrees, like where a decree is made and that's that. Like that's like this is the word of daddy, and you just gotta you gotta listen up. Like Bonaparte's right. Bonaparte, make, the second Bonaparte makes these 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 decrees, but he's just like contradicting himself consciously, uh, constantly, and he's he's like the like you know actual dad as opposed to the like you know <laughs> Zeus standing on top of a mountain throwing lightning bolts, dad. You know, it's kind of like Boris Johnson or. Yeah, you know, with their bullshit, you know, let's build a bridge right. to Ireland. You know, that, <laughs> was they saying that last week? He came out and said he wanted to build a bridge to Ireland. It would have to be like 50 miles long and it would have to go through a trench where they bu- buried like a million tons of explosives in World War II. <laughs> you know, just they, they yeah. were saying you'd have to like float it, you'd have to float the thing. Uh, it's just like ridiculous. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like the peasants deserved it and that never happened, but also. Like the peasants said, they were cool with it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I'm going. Okay, we can read. do this. We we, we have one it. more. We got one more page. Basically, that's pretty. Yeah. Right, like on my reader, that's that. This is it. This is okay, the who, final who, stretch. Let's bring it all home. Bonaparte would like to appear as the patriarchal benefactor of all classes, but he cannot give to one without taking from another. Just as it was said of the Duc de Guise in the time of the Fronde that he was the most obliging man in France because he gave all his estates to his followers with feudal obligations to him. So Bonaparte would like to be the most obliging man in France and turn all the property and all the labor of France into a personal obligation to himself. He would like to steal all of France in order to make it a present of it to France or in order to buy France anew with French money. For as the chief of the society of December 10th, he must buy what ought to belong to him. And to the institution of purchase belong all the state institutions, the Senate, the Council of State, the Assembly, the Legion of Honor, the military medals, the public laundries, the public works, the railroads, the general staff, the officers of the National Guard, the confiscated estates of the House of Orleans. The means of purchase is obtained by selling each place in the army and the government machinery. But the most important feature of this process by which France is taken in order to give to her are the percentages that find their way into the pockets of the head 
and the members of the Society of December 10th during the turnover. The witticism with which Countess L, the mistress of Monsieur de Morny, characterized the confiscation of the Orléans estates. It is the first vol, uh, flight and theft, of the eagle. It's a very good pun. It's not, it's, not Marx's pun, but it's a very good pun. Yeah, that's it's, it's a pretty dope pun. I needed a, a translation for me to appreciate. Is applicable to every flight of this eagle, who is more like a raven. He and his follower call out to one another like that of Italian Carthusian, admonishing the miser who ostentatiously counted the goods on which he could still live for years. Thou countest thy goods, thou shouldst first count thy years. In order not to make a mistake in the years, they count the minutes. At the court, in the ministries, at the head of the administration and the army, a gang of blokes, of whom the best that can be said is that one does not know whence they come. These noisy, disreputable, rapacious bohemians who crawl into gallooned coats with the same grotesque dignity of the high dignitaries of Soluque elbow their way forward. One can visualize clearly this upper stratum of the society of December 10th if one reflects that Veron Cavell, a dissolute Philistine character in Balzac's novel Cousin Beth, is its preacher of morals and Grenier de Cossonac its thinker. When Guizot, at the time of his ministry, turned this Grenier of an obscure newspaper into a dynastic opponent, he used to boast of him with the quip, he is the king of buffoons. It would be wrong to recall either the Regency or Louis XV in connection with Louis Bonaparte's court and clique. For, quote, often before France has experienced a government of mistresses, but never before a government of kept men. Quoted from the uh, Madame de Girardin. Driven by the contradictory demands of his situation and being at the same time like a juggler under the necessity of keeping the public gaze on himself as Napoleon's successor by springing constant surprises, that is to say, under the necessity of arranging a coup d'etat in miniature every day, Bonaparte throws the whole bourgeois economy into confusion, violates everything that seemed inviolable to the revolution of 1848, makes some tolerant of revolution and makes others lust for it, and produces anarchy in the name of order, while at the same time stripping the entire state machinery of its halo, profaning it, and making it at once loathsome and ridiculous. The cult of the holy tunic of Trier, a Catholic relic allegedly taken from Christ when he was dying, preserved in the cathedral of Marx's native city. He duplicates in Paris the cult of the Napoleonic imperial mantle. When the imperial mantle finally falls on the shoulders of Louis Bonaparte, the bronze statue of Napoleon will come crashing down from the top of the Vendome column. And this was uh, also prophetic, right? The the commune the commune did did bring it crashing down. Oh yeah, <sighs> we're here. We're here. We're at we're at the final layers of invective littered with obscure references. I did really like uh, the line, "Thou countest thy goods; thou should first count thy years." Yeah. <laughs> That's a very threatening line to say to somebody, isn't it? Oh, yeah. The miser sitting with his gold. You're counting your money. <laughs> Count your fucking seconds, boyo. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, 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 it also rhymes in the Italian, which is very nice. Tu fai conto sobre i beni, bisogna prima pari il conto sopra gli anni. Beni and anni are. That is beautiful. And I, I do like often before France has experienced the government of mistresses, but never before a government of <laughs> cat men. <laughs> Zing. Zing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, these, these, these salon going Parisians, uh, they had some zingers. Yeah. They could spit bars. They could spit yeah. bars. Yeah. yeah. So Three is there hours. much substance to this or is it just a lot of like, I think it's just fire. Yo, this guy's this guy's done. Yeah, we haven't had a government of rent boys before. Like we've had a government (laughs) of prostitutes, but not of rent boys. (laughs) That's that's the cash value of of what's being said here. That like, 
you know, he's talking about the buying of public offices, which is, you know, not exactly a thing we've seen with Trump. Obviously, right. there's been corruption under Trump, but there hasn't been selling of sure. offices, as far as we know, at least. Well, we know. And yeah. Nothing nothing beyond the regular revolving door, it seems. Like, yeah. people make a big deal out of Trump's revolving door, but that is more or less just a... <laughs> That's just how it, how it goes, yeah. Yeah, it's a continuation of practice. Has that revolving door become more of a thing, though? Like, I, I, I think in... I don't know, like in, in England, say now, like historically, there was a culture of a civil service as a respected class job mm. at the highest level. I think in <sighs> Ireland as well. But I think more and more now they're infected by they literally they're just getting like people from business coming into the civil service, you know, yeah, at I, the I, top I, levels and changing it and just getting political nominations at a much in a much cruder way than I think previously was the case. I mean, I think that's our, that's already been extraordinarily weakened in American public life over the last few decades. And like what you see now is maybe a bit more just like personal nepotism creeping into it r- rather than, you know, the revolving door becoming more important than meritocracy. Cause that coup already happened. Like it is, it is pretty funny the degree to which, uh, you know, Trump wanted to stack his cabinet with family members not in the way that uh, like Louis Napoleon did, but in the way that the first Napoleon did with making his family all <laughs> kings and queens of, of the different countries of Europe and it just being a kind of a disaster. Yeah. No, that's, that is kind of more parallel, yeah. What about the bit here then where <laughs> you use blokes? That's a kind of an interesting... Uh, yeah, that was cute. Uh, uh, it's quite, quite a London translation. Uh, but... Uh, this bit, like, Bonaparte throws the whole bourgeoisie economy into confusion, violates everything that seemed inviolable to the revolution of 1848, makes some tolerant of revolution and makes others lust for it and produces anarchy in the name of order, while at the same time stripping the entire state machinery of its halo, profaning it and making it at once loathsome and ridiculous. <laughs> like, that's got to hurt Americans, that line now. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I I feel like like Trump has done that to a far greater degree than Louis Bonaparte ever did. Like, (laughs) Louis Bonaparte sort of, like, ended up doing this, like, for sure. Like, he provoked the commune, right? But at the same time, like, there was a kind of uh, revolutionary progressive character to his regime that somewhat complicates what Marx says here, which I don't think Marx anticipated. It, yeah, but in I, the case of Trump, like, that's spot on. It's a much younger republic that he is violating and humiliating. Like, mm, the true. republic for which it stands here is, you know, something that's lasted a civil war and two centuries. And this is really a sign of trouble the internal dynamics can't really hold for much longer. Whereas in France, you have governments going up and down all the time. So too will that humiliation and collapse be of a magnified proportion. For sure. And like, you know, uh, Louis Bonaparte has things like his adventure in Mexico, trying to install an emperor there. And then that just being a total disaster. (laughs) I believe he also got involved in the Meiji Restoration. The French supported the losing side of the war, uh, <laughs> whereas the British supported the winning wow. side and wow. the Americans. Uh, uh, so, I did not know this. Yeah, but the, 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 the adventure in Mexico was really the one that threw his regime into enormous instability. So... And then he tries to get out of it by fighting a war with Prussia, and obviously it doesn't work out. Yep. All I can say is is death to America. I think that's what we've done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even even ultimately in the Franco-Prussian War, like, because Bismarck sort of goaded Louis Napoleon Mm -hmm. into attacking them, like, Marx and Engels were initially, like, supporting the Franco-Prussian War because it had appeared to have been an attack by France of Germany. Like, yes. And I mean, that is pretty much what happened, but Bismarck goaded that into happening. 
Like yeah, he, he like was... played directly. The, Louis Napoleon played directly into Bismarck's hand. As was typical, Bismarck was playing three moves ahead. Right. Actual, yeah. you know, three-dimensional chess as opposed to the way that people choose to uh, look at some of the erratic decision-making of, of one Louis Napoleon or Donald Trump. So so Trump is kind of like, we're saying like that Bismarck is kind of like Q going on? Is that what we're saying? We're saying like... You know, <laughs> Like that Trump is actually uh, Bismarck. He's not I mean, part. I, I mean, I mean, perhaps I don't know. I was thinking more of Spock literally playing three-dimensional chess in the, in the TOS. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't want to compare Bismarck to Spock. That seems that seems wrong. In, in our in our modern scenario, obviously Bismarck is Nancy Pelosi, who is just like <laughs> this incredible long game of ousting Trump and asserting endless democratic authority. You see this tweet here, like the, Q, the QAnon are actually, do you, know, do you know what they're taking from this tweet? Oh, they're God. saying, look, this is, it's a, it, the tweet says, going well, comma, I think, it's exclamation mark. Thank you, thank you to all, full stop, love and capital letters. They noticed that the well has got a, 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 an L and a capital I. <laughs> oh no! And they're saying, "What is he trying to tell us? This is a code. They're trying to. We crack have to it. go to Illinois. Get out oh. the twine and the corkboard, folks. We're gonna yeah. figure this one out. Time to go full Maddow. Uh, uh, full with... Maddow. Full Maddow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> full Maddow is mask off. I love Trump so much. He's my friend. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my like, daddy. I mean, oh, it's uh, there. Yeah, there was a time. There was a time when Rachel Maddow and Alex Jones weren't kind of the same thing in my brain. But you know, those were simple days, much simpler days. Oh, yeah. simpler days. Yeah. You yeah. Know. He's yeah, he's a like, Russian plant, and also pray for him. <laughs> we need our Russian plant. <laughs> Any final thoughts then on on the reading that we've just completed? You know, I think for me, the biggest part here was the bit about petty proprietorship and its relationship to the state. That was that was fire. That was like, holy shit. You could read this. And you could actually like get a read on the seemingly totally incoherent political landscape of America. And that was a. Uh, that was very, very interesting to me. We began this series being like, now, I don't want to get too lost in the analogy to, you know, Donald Trump and the, the fall of the American Republic. And we end with like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> like we end, like, there's so, there's so many interesting, like, theories of dynamics here. Some of the most famous ones in terms of, like, class interests are actually kind of, shaky maybe a bit dodgy but some of the ones about the state and the relationship of like the state to class interest turn out to be some of the most enduring and interesting and the way that bonapartist dynamics when the state is is taking off on its own and the way that it can kind of angle at declaring war on politics quote unquote that's eye-opening and interesting you know, aside from the sort of conspiracy theory running through where, you know, the cabal of December 10th takes hold of the government. What we have here is a really interesting, like, historical narrative and an attempt to, you know, apply a lot of Marxian analysis to a particular historical event, to a political situation in a way that demonstrates Marx's sophistication as a thinker, for the most part, except for the conspiracy theory, right? Like, <laughs> like you see how much that personal agency can, does not necessarily correlate with direct class interest. You see the way that, you know, political agency and f class fractions can be forward looking, can like, you know, depart from their, you know, class destiny. There's a lot of readings of Marx that are refuted by this text. You can't like get through the 18th Brumaire and believe a certain story that you get from about Marx from a lot of angles, like the Cold War Marx, 
you know, is, is decimated by this text. Yeah. And I, I also think another thing I take away from this is that there are weirdly aspects of Bonaparte that are sort of the ridiculous clownish nature, which uh, we, we see in, in, in Trump. But most of the more substantial aspects are actually characteristic of, of the Democrats. And that's been an interesting thing for me to see in terms of like, you know, the, the things they represent yeah. and the way they try to impose order on society, the, the, the way in which they make use of the state purse to uh, create political patronage. Like in the past times I read this, None of that ever really occurred to me. So uh, it, it's been interesting to see that. And uh, I guess there is that sort of crank read of American history of like American Bonapartism starts with FDR. And, you know, there's, there's sort of like this weird like argument that America has either like descended into fascism or is like pseudo-fascist or pseudo-bonapartist or something like that. There's all these crank reads of American history that come out of that. But I do think there is like, you know, reading this, the end part of this, uh, of this book, there's a certain degree of which like that kind of like bonapartist reading of American politics should be taken seriously while also acknowledging how obviously capitalism's changed world dynamics have changed and settler colonialism is a factor in American politics that it's not in, in France. Yeah. I'd also like, what did I take from, I, I liked, he, he's quite explicit in this idea of like the class operating as a class for itself. I, I think that's something that's very interesting, like, and, and clearly expressed. I, I also, do you know what I, I really like is his, is his way of, describing history and the process of you know how a class learns a certain lesson from this action and it goes down a different avenue after that and then that interacts with another class in a formation in another way and that that these kind of roots kind of have to be taken kind of are you know are taken and he, he makes uh he describes the logical progression of of these movements in a way this you know this kind of unfolding way that I find I find having read this incredibly insightful. I really do like. Mm. I I think that's like his way of writing history and explaining his. It's it's amazing. You know, it's it's like I put it up there with like value theory. To be honest with you. Oh yeah, um, like this is another part of his kind of theoretical corpus is, and it's like not quite as spelled out as you know his critique of political economy or you know even like the sort of outlines of a theory of historical materialism that he gives but the way that you know you go for, you get from like class interests and how that builds into political coalitions and ends up with a dynamic of society and parts of the state fighting different parts of itself like this is a big contribution and like like this and, you know, the civil war in France, those are the big applications of this. It's the big applications of, okay, so what is this historical materialist, like theoretical background supposed to add to a political analysis? These are the exemplars we have from Marx. I definitely see a lack of this kind of analysis today where sort of like the kinds of punditry that Marx is doing has a memory span that is longer than like two months. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Sort of like <laughs> laying out how did we get from an inciting incident to here and how did people continuously undermine their own positions? That kind of punditry, you know, because this is, this is partially journalistic what Marx is doing here. You know, it, it has sort of both sides of Marx the journalist in the sense that, like, yes. it's very, very observant, but also very conspiratorial. 
I just I just think we could do with like an accounting of you know how do we get from the coup of George W. Bush to the nightmare world we live in now, right? Like, <laughs> you know, it's it, 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 that kind of political history would be interesting to see more of. And maybe more rigorous accounting, uh, you know, beyond the political, self-serving, like political mythos, like. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it would be good to see. Like, yeah, I, I think, Tom, you have the same kind of inkling that it's not really a coup. It is sort of American institutions functioning as intended, which is to say horribly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, well, just go and say, like, it's more than two months you know, memory, Kyle. He actually, I think the very first page starts off with ancient Rome. Well, know, so. yeah, 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 that's what I'm thinking. Is Marx a classicist? And in a way that isn't just like perfunctory, like the way that American conservatives throw around Rome. He's not like right. a classicist in the way that Boris Johnson likes to mention Greek oh, names. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> you know, Cato once uh, said that tyranny is bad, you know. That's why I don't yeah. want to have universal health. That's, that's why I work for the Keto Institute. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, one thing we just haven't discussed as a roundup, just last question then, is what do we learn or what what kind of insights have the panelists yourselves drawn from this and his analysis, analysis of the class forces around at the time, the nature of the class forces, the state, the army, etc., for our hopes for a communist revolution in in the core countries Oof. because that's our that's our real reason to read this really isn't it when we get down to it that's that's what we're after uh, yeah aside, well aside from just the pleasure of reading it yes <laughs> mm. pleasure is bad <laughs> I, 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 the uh, priests have gotten to you Tom yeah <laughs> really it fucked me up long time Come on, we need to have an, an Aristotelian appreciation for pleasure, even if it isn't the good in itself. Um, how do I, how do I say this? Like, we're in such a vastly different situation. And by starting with that table where we are comparing the contemporary proletariat to the, you know, disintegrating like peasantry, like I, you know, I, unfortunately, the way that Marx deals with the London proletariat is via conspiracy. So some of the most important questions that we have aren't really, we don't get like that great of a sense from this text on how to operationalize on them. What we get is a warning that, you know, if there's someone that comes along promising sausages that we got to get ready. (laughs) If anybody comes over to me and starts promising me sausages, you know, I'm out of there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Someone starts pitching sausage. You better duck. Um, which is, you know, already my policy anyway. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that we can do like direct historical induction here for revolutionary, like kind of. Uh, I'm not talking about direct induction, but like, or, or not even know. direct induction, because what we see here is a ch- like the proletariat is 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 immediately taken off the stage here, and what plays out is a farcical like drama of mostly counter-revolutionary forces and the varying degrees that the party of order eats itself. This is, you know, perhaps the maestra in reverse, or instead of the revolution devouring its children, the counter-revolution devours its children. That's a very good point. Yeah. And so like, perhaps we get some advice for, you know, like as, as a series of negative examples for what not to get suckered into when the proletariat and its political alternatives are off the table. Yeah, that tracks for me. I think for many people in the developed Western world, the center of the capitalist economy for at least a little, a little while longer, your relationship to the sort of liberals as a leftist is a major political question. And I think what I get from this, aside from the ways in which like liberals could be enormously self-sabotaging and, and social Democrats for that matter, because they, they also get a whipping in this one. Yep. Yep. Uh, Is 
the way in which post-war compromise, social democracy slash kind of like Peronist, weird, like semi-pro-worker, like corporatist politics that you see in America exhibit a lot of the qualities that Marx attributes to Louis Bonaparte and, and a lot of the quote-unquote qualities of, of Bonapartism. And I think what it comes to then is like, do you take a stance against all of that because you agree with Marx's theory of the state and the way it relates, it relates to class? Or do you think that Marx's theory of the state was wrong and go in the, in the right socialist direction, right? And I think that reading this text poses that question very clearly in a way that most people today would not pose it. There's a lot of waffling on that question, you know, for obvious reasons of like welfare and healthcare and stuff for the workers is like saving people's lives right the fuck now. So that's, that's a valuable thing. But yeah, like, I think that's what I take away in terms of revolutionary strategy is like, well, do I agree with Marx's theory of the state? Do I agree with his theory of the post-state possibility of society? And your strategy is going to fall out of that to a large but not total extent. Where, where do I you end up, Tom? No, I, I just wanted to pose the same question to you. What, with the yeah, revolutionary like, strategy stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's the cash value of this text for you, you know, other than obviously the pure pleasure of reading it and talking through it with our, with our friends, you know, like, which, you know, I, I mean... This has been, I think this has, you know, been a pretty fun way to spend the apocalypse. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't discount that. But, you know, in terms of the, the cash value here, as uh, pro-revolutionaries in 2020 watching the world burn, like, what do you get out of this? Well, I think on a base level, you know, we got to, the proletariat, we have to organize our in institutions to act so that we become acting as a class for our own class interests. I think the you know, quote unquote, left parties we see in developed countries are basically capitalist parties. So I think that's a real kind of core, obviously, revolutionary point. Uh, I think also the understanding of the class dynamics of how we describe the social democrats and how they were kind of, I think in chapter three, where he he just slates this idea where the petty bourgeois who they they assume that their interests are not their interests, but interests, the general interests of the country. I think <laughs> that that is a key understanding that like mm -hmm. we need to be absolutely fucking fierce, fiercely attack that type of socialism in quote inverted commas. And I think just our, I think the for for a revolutionary struggle, I think we should learn. Uh, uh, getting back again to the point about how Marx interprets the movements of the classes in their battles or in you know in their dynamics, us getting a that kind of a dynamic understanding of how classes th these things in history works is extremely important for us to understand our own strategy and, and what type of things we should or should not do and outcomes we should or should not expect. Because at the moment, there's no awareness of understanding, or even if, I would even go further. I think people actually understand some of the stuff, right? But they just kind of go, oh, well, uh, you know, people can, people, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a goddamn huge industry of being like a socialist or somebody who's a communist who talks about like a good game when it comes down to it. They have absolutely no interest in revolutionary struggle. None. None. Say, for example, Chapo. Does anybody in Chapo Trap House have any revolutionary instinct? What do I you think? I don't think anyone there would agree with Marx's theory of the state. I think they, 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 they're pretty much all buy into the uh, right socialist view of the state. Exactly. Right? Yeah. What's the equivalent in the UK? Like, I don't know, Navarra Media or somebody. Th that's they the one that comes to mind. They call themselves communists, right? I'd say Matt Chrisman would call himself a socialist in a slightly more 
uh, or he certainly lets on he is. But but when it when it when the push comes to the shove, they're they're the right wing of the SPD, and like in in Navarra media, you've got uh, two the two there's three of them on it. Two of them call themselves communists, and they they talk about you know uh, job creators and uh, you know encouraging entrepreneurs and stuff. Like it's <laughs> they literally like they've, they've, they've gone the way of the Saint Simonians. Yeah, that's all they yeah. are. That's all they are. I like, haven't checked in with our friends at Navarra Media for oh five years, but they literally they they put they couch themselves in the language. They're people who came up like through college and were kind of oh like the radical aesthetic and stuff like that, and then they've just you know gone for the money. Or if they ever changed their politics, yeah. who knows? I mean, fucking welcome to the Marxist tradition. I mean, the the other tradition is you know uh, the tank fetish and like. And and that seems to be like the you know who's monopolizing uh, discourse after the after the you know end of Sanders and Corbyn, like those are like you know don't vote you know read State and Revolution and embrace the mortal science or read Foundations of of uh, Leninism, um, and I mean I'm not saying that those people are like going to get like you know a whole lot of traction or do anything other than start some cults, but like. Um, yeah, like, I haven't even started on the anarchists. <laughs> you know, the anarchists. You know what? The anarchists are the only one doing sh- like anything. The anarchists are out there providing like riot support to the black proletariat when it fights back against the state. So the anarchists are the only ones doing shit for the real movement. That that is maybe that's probably true at the moment, but it's not. Right. An, it's not. It's a movement, but it's not the real movement. It's the only movement that's there. Like it's know, it is the that, only real movement. And but sure, it, it, like, but it's, there it's there could be some way. Class. It's I, just I, not. I, just, I don't. I, I don't know about that. Like, I think. I think it is like in deindustrializing like American society. They're the proletariat, cold. not the proletariat, not wanting to be like attacked by the police and fighting back against the police, is asserting its right to live. You know, like, and it, it, it is cast in racial terms because of the disproportionate amount of police murders. But the worst nightmare of the bourgeoisie is that this would generalize into, you know, like a proletarian revolt against the agents of the bourgeois state. That oh, is the worst me, look, nightmare. I and, completely and, agree, and, but yeah. but but all I'm saying is, like, I completely agree with you. Like, I am well aversed, <laughs> totally, and I think. The anarchists are like on the ground and doing stuff, but like it's it, it's not the movement that will anarchist leadership or whatever. But like it's the only movement. That's yeah, yeah, the, totally. That's the I'm thing. not even I'm not even disagreeing to you. like I, I I just feel like that for the for if we're going to criticize the social democrats for trying to get people healthcare, right? And if we're going to criticize the tanks for I don't know what the hell they're doing, right? We got to criticize the anarchists for what they're not doing too. What they are doing is good, and they're in there on the ground doing that stuff. But they're they're, they're it's not coalescing into this idea of the you might say the classes the classes doing something as a class. I would say that at the it's it's minimal, and so we that's that's our our left. We don't have this kind of centrist, if you want to call it you know, kind of orthodox yeah. Marxist position. And I, 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 honest to God, I think that's where we need to go. I'm, I'm not somebody who reads Marx and agrees with everything he says. Like, I'm not a dogma, dogmatist. I, but I do think that, that all of our current strategies are, are not working. I would say that the least wrong <laughs> might be the anarchists. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, 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 can, I, can, I can get with that and, and say that, you know, there is something lacking in the, quote, strategy there. Look, frankly, a lot of anarchists do not have a strategy and do not think in terms of strategy. Think more in terms of tactics of, you know, how, how do we out- outflank the cops tonight or something? And, like, yeah. they don't have that sort of long-term access and that it would be better to, you know, get anarchists to think in that more of a long-term sense of how do you build this movement out into something that can continue to fight for itself, not just on the night of the riot. And so that we don't end up having to do substitutionalism for the proletariat once they're, once they're crushed. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Like acknowledging 
that part of the reason anarchists don't do that is because the history of anarchist strategic theory is pretty dire. You know, like it's not like the anarchist tradition doesn't have a history of strategizing. <laughs> it's just conspiratorial and terrorist uh, is, yeah. is the is the bent of anarchist strategy for the most part. And, yeah. and honestly, like modern anarchists don't have that element really at all. You know, no, no, they uh, don't. I, 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 well, yeah, you know. I think, I think that's giving modern anarchists a little too much credit. And I am defending anarchists on the whole, like that. No, but in the world, we don't see them out there like fucking, you know, killing, and you don't see them like assassinating like CEOs. That's not a thing we see now. We would have seen a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, but that's not the. It's more of a propaganda of the deed against property now, which is, I think, much more defensible anyway. But you know, whatever, like. But I, th I think that Kyle's point still stands, that the body of anarchist like strategic theory is, you know, not great. And it is mostly like conspiratorial. And there, there are better anarchists out there that don't see things like that. And I, and I even think some of the ones that operate in sort of conspiratorial cells see themselves as doing autonomy, see themselves as doing, you know, with their comrades, like the only thing that can be done. And so I'm not even like... Not even just like spitting at them, you know what I mean? Like, they just don't think like some proletarian democracy thing popping out of this is really possible. So they're they're trying to accomplish anything. But if this is going to go anywhere, other than you know, ending up with the party of order taking control and crushing everything, it has to, it has to go somewhere. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with the broad outlines of the Marxian critique of anarchism, but. The details, that's where the devil is. I just thought I'd show you this meme that somebody sent it to me. The IRA, ahead of their time, wearing <laughs> masks, social distancing, <laughs> personal protective equipment. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, I would say that uh, I appreciate the degree to which Marx's, like, you know, Ezra, you were talking before about how, like, you can't view class... You can't view politics as a pure extension of, like, uh, ideal class interests. Right. You can't just sort of, like, move from that ideal typical analysis into directly into political analysis. And I will say that, like, I appreciate the nuance that Marx brings here and how, like, that can kind of overlap with what anarchists do in their organizing. I think there's a lot of pitfalls that are available there, especially the ones that go into, because, you know, like, in a way, what the Bolsheviks did in the, the Russian Revolution was to co-opt the SR program. Right? Yeah. It, it was like a bot. It was like taking the Kautskyite German social democracy and merging it with the SR peasant uh, line. And that's a danger. That's a real danger. But, you know, it's... Uh, I guess it's nice to see that there's, like, room, theoretical room in Marx to examine those border areas or those sort of hybrid areas of politics in a way that may be fruitful in relationship to anarchists. Like, this other thing there is, like, how come we've walked, how many chapters, seven chapters, nearly 150, 60 pages, never once in it did Marx mention, like, socialist or communist podcasts. What the hell is that about? <laughs> are you telling me that communist podcasts are entirely peripheral to the revolutionary process? <laughs> Fuck this, lads. Fuck this. Let's, let's produce the paper. Well, let's go you know, paper. Yeah. gotta go get, yeah, gotta go sell, sell newspapers, Tom. Obviously, Derek, Marx, Marx would approve of that. Derek was talking partially about like how this uh, this text is a a bit of a rebuttal of Bakunin by way of never talking about Bakunin at all, and so I, I, I think that 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 podcast left podcaster beefing <laughs> stuff that uh, we see today is very like subterranean in this text. Yeah, that, that makes sense.
On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. The artwork for the show was created by the Korean artist and author of the 2019 Marx Engels illustration book. You can check out links to his work and Twitter account in the show notes. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollars.